Hello and welcome to episode 237 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. How's it going, Ian? It's going well, Jason. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks. You didn't answer for yourself, though. How are you? I didn't. I thought I did. I said it's going well. Oh, okay. Maybe you dropped out for a second, but that's good to hear. Yes. That's good to hear. I'm happy. I'm feeling better coming back strong and ready to do this week's show. We've got a lot of aviation news that's happened over the past week, but really one dominating story that is dominating headlines outside. Uh, Yeah, all of the stories outside of aviation, but we're going to focus on the aviation tie-in, obviously, for this week's episode. So I, I guess let's just dive in. Over the weekend, Hamas launched a surprise attack on Israel, launching dozens, if not hundreds of rockets into Israel from Gaza. And as the fallout has continued, we've been following very closely its impact on aviation and specifically commercial aviation. At this point in the story, most airlines have begun to cancel their operations into Tel Aviv. We're recording on Wednesday, the 11th of October. A few airlines initially held back their service and then resumed operating. Then there were airlines that said we're canceling through a certain date. And now there are airlines that are saying we're just canceling until further notice. We've got a long list that includes all the major US airlines, most European airlines, certain other airlines have kind of withdrawn their service, and then some are still operating as of today. And all of the Israeli airlines are still operating, including Arkia and LL. So it's a very fluid situation. Just today, British Airways was still operating. BA-165 was an A350-1000 operating to Tel Aviv. Made it all the way to the approach when there were additional missiles launched in the vicinity of Tel Aviv's Bungarian airport, and the aircraft was turned back all the way to London. So a very, very fluid situation as far as which airlines are operating. I'm sure that the list that we've just kind of hinted at in talking about it just now, I'm sure that will be out of date by the time the podcast comes out on Friday. But but I think the point stands that it's a, a very fluid situation. Yes. And of course, this did not happen with any prior notice. So it was very interesting to watch all of the airlines react to it in various ways. United had a flight in route 777 300ER en route from San Francisco that turned around all the way over Greenland and ended yeah. up being a 14-hour flight to nowhere, probably extremely justified from that. But that was really the first sign that the dominoes were about to come down. That was the first real airline reaction, at least that I saw. And then everything from an airline point of view, at least on October 7th, started deteriorating in real time, but actually stabilized for a while. So there was a while on October 7th where Emirates and Fly Dubai actually both had flights in the air and they they noped out and returned back to Dubai. But ironically, those are two of the last non-Israeli airlines still operating to Israel. That's a sentence you probably wouldn't have said two years ago. It's a very strange turn of events. Turkish Airlines as well had some interesting operations in that they had one flight returning from diverting away from Tel Aviv back to Istanbul as another one was taking off from Istanbul to go to Tel Aviv. The whole thing was just very interesting to watch airlines react to it. 
Obviously, air, a lot of these airlines have global operations, so they keep an eye on everything happening in the world, and they have to react to that in real time and either cancel flights, divert flights, get their crews out, do whatever they need to safely operate or safely not operate. And it was interesting to see the reactions to that. Some airlines had a little more of a knee-jerk reaction, at least the, the three major U.S. airlines, Delta and American, as soon as things started to go sideways, pulled their aircraft and their flight crews out. So Delta landed from JFK, immediately took back off with no passengers, uh, just crew, and any Delta employee who wanted out could get out. American did the same, but United took a different course, and, and it's two aircraft one flight bound for New York and one flight bound for, I believe, Dulles, they stuck around for a few hours to completely fill up the aircraft with its scheduled passengers and get everyone out. And then some really unfortunate that this is how we have to see how airlines react to a situation, but interesting nonetheless to see the different reactions to something ongoing in real time. Yeah. And different governments have reacted in, in different ways as well in order to get their citizens out. Some have been using commercial lift and getting their citizens out of Israel on board commercial aircraft and then flying them onward from other locations. Some sent aircraft all the way from their home countries to pick citizens up. Both Brazil and Chile sent aircraft. The Brazilian MRTT is currently in the air on the way home from Tel Aviv back to Rio de Janeiro. A Chilean Air Force 737-300 left yesterday. Poland has been running shuttles, basically using the government 737, C-130s, and CASA-295s. The UK sent an RAF Voyager down to collect citizens, as well as the Dutch sending an MRTT, the, the A330 platform, basically. And then there are commercial airlines that have scheduled or said they are going to operate repatriation flights. Lufthansa said that they will operate repatriation flights. But KLM also said that they were going to operate a repatriation flight, but then said today, based on the experience of the government aircraft and the deteriorating security situation, they were unable to send an aircraft. They said after assessing the security situation, they did not feel comfortable sending their crew into Israel. Yeah. The quote from KLM issued by KLM Newsroom really didn't mince words. They straight up said, and I quote here, based on the experiences of today's military flight and the most recent information on the situation in Israel, it is currently insufficient for civil aviation to carry out safe flight for passengers and crew. That's a pretty strong statement. And it's still difficult for me to reconcile how some airlines right now are saying it is unsafe to fly to Israel while others are you know, continuing on business more or less as usual. It's, it's a very strange time right now. And then you have, of course, the Israeli airport authority saying, no, don't even worry about it. There's no problem. They said after the BA flight returned to London, after being on approach, they said, hey, this comes from Reuters, I believe. A spokesperson for Israel's airports authority said rockets were flying around Tel Aviv at the time, but were not an immediate threat to the flight or Ben Gurion airport. I cannot reconcile that sentence in my head. It does not check out. Rockets in the area means flying is not safe. I don't see how you could possibly say otherwise. And I agree with BA and these other airlines have, who have decided not to fly to Israel, at least until things calm down. I just can't figure out how on the one hand they can say there are rockets, but don't, don't worry about it. It's not a problem. So the Israeli Civil Aviation Authority has said that there is conflict. We haven't said 
anything is closed, everything is still open. Check with the Civil Aviation Authority for any updates, but you can continue flying. There are a few interesting new notams at Ben Gurion Airport, one of which is that refueling aircraft while passengers are on board is now prohibited. So that's a new one this week. And then outside governments have issued their own notams. The FAA has issued a special security notice that says, in part, a potentially hazardous situation in Israeli airspace due to the ongoing conflict situation between Israel and Gaza. Operators are advised to use caution when operating within the Tel Aviv flight information region. Currently, no restrictions on US flights, but pay attention. And if you don't feel safe, don't don't go there. The Canadians have said much the same thing. IASA has issued a conflict zone information bulletin saying roughly the same thing as well. The Russian Aviation Authority, however, has taken a slightly different stance, a slightly more restrictive stance. And I was, I think, Jason, I think we're both surprised slightly by this. Yeah. Russia has banned its commercial aircraft from operating into Israel overnight. So they cannot arrive or depart to Tel Aviv between 2200 and 0400 UTC. Daylight operations are fine, but no night flying for Russian carriers. Okay. That's an interesting one from a a country I did not expect to see such restriction issued by. And there were still Russian airlines operating into Tel Aviv. I don't think any of the major airlines, but a lot of lot of super jet activity in and out of Tel Aviv, which is an interesting footnote, I think. But apparently that won't be happening at night anytime soon. No, not going to happen at night. And then I think the last thing that I think we should discuss at least a little bit because it's come up I know, Jason, it's come up in your conversations about what's happening, and I know that a few people have asked us about it or pointed out using some jet photos of Israeli aircraft, Israeli commercial aircraft, and that's the issue of why some aircraft are flying and the countermeasures available to Israeli commercial aircraft. And I'll let you get into the finer points here because I I think you had a a point to make here. Not so much a point to make, but I I keep seeing it come up on social media that, oh, El Al is operating or the Israeli airlines, because there there are more than just El Al, they're still operating because they have uh, anti-missile technology and they're not at risk. And that is partially true, I would say, less so than in the past, actually. But it is true that some Israeli airline aircraft do have an anti-missile defense system on some of their aircraft. But it is on very few aircraft, especially when you're looking at El Al, and it doesn't actually protect against the weaponry we're seeing in use right now in Israel. So the system actually installed- We should say it's not designed with that weaponry. We don't actually know for sure that it wouldn't protect against something like this. With all things military technology, we don't actually know all of the details. And LI would never actually tell us all of the capabilities that this thing can or cannot do. But what we do know is that the system installed on some LL 737s, very few of them, and the 777-200s is designed to protect against man pads, man portable air defense systems, or basically shoulder-launched heat-seeking surface-to-air missiles, of which I have not seen any reports of those actually being 
used here. So basically what happens, it, it, this is something, uh, there is precedent for this. There have been issues with this kind of attack in the past in Israel, but basically it's a shoulder fired rocket that uses, it's a guided missile, heat seeking missile, but that's just not what is in being used here in Israel. So we're seeing unguided rockets that are, they're dropping down from the air basically they're not being shot up from the ground and the system installed really isn't going to do much probably we don't know for sure but my our best guess is that it's not really going to provide much if any defense here and it was never certified for the 787 which is the bulk almost the entirety of LL's long-haul fleet at this point so if you do see that mentioned keep in mind that it's not as comprehensive or as protective as some people would like you to think, but it is there. It is on some aircraft, but probably not going to come into play in this particular conflict. At least yet. We'll see. I hope not. I hope this is never actually in use, or I'm sure it's in use, but I hope it's never actually deployed, used, actively defending against anything. But I did want to just bring up that there's this misconception that, oh, it's LL, it's fine, they'll be safe. Not really. They're just as vulnerable as any other airline, which is to say, very. So we'll continue to follow this and have an update next week on has the situation stabilized? Has it changed? Has it deteriorated? And what's happening? But that's where we'll leave it for for this week. And I don't really have a transition here. We'll go from Tel Aviv to Chattanooga? Okay. I guess. Sister cities. Why not? There you go. So a FedEx 757 conducted a gear up landing in Chattanooga late last week. This particular aircraft was departing Chattanooga from Memphis and had to stop its climb and run some checklists. Eventually, they, after trying to use the alternate method to lower the gear, they were unsuccessful. They decided to conduct a gear up landing on the runway at Chattanooga. The aircraft safely managed that, but was moving fast enough that it went off the end of the runway. Fortunately, None of the three FedEx crew members on board were seriously injured. So uh, about as good a result as you're going to get. Yeah. And there is video of this if you want to go take a look at that. And it's it's pretty dramatic, but 757 doing what the 757 does best and it's staying in one piece. And it looks sad, you know, with the tensions all beat up. But if this were a Delta 75, I bet we'd see it back in the air already. <laughs> Probably. They would have jacked it up the same day. And I do want to bring up one very funny tweet I saw from uh, apparently Matthew Cabotage Enjoyer on, on Twitter and said, uh, if I were FedEx, I would have directed the crew to land at Louisville. No reason your loss can't also be UPS's loss. And I, I thought that was just <laughs> a really a stupid but funny tweet. For those that may not be in the loop, Louisville is UPS's Worldport hub. I think it's Worldport, right? No, that's yes. Uh, yes, Worldport Hub. They're mega hub. All their flights come in or out of there. Uh, if you're FedEx, why not strand your aircraft on one of their runways? I thought that was just uh, that's a good good comment. That's just mean, funny, that, but mean. It's good. It is good. I'll give it to them. It is good. Only two hundred miles away. Could have yeah, made it. They could have made it. Speaking of not good, Luton in London, the airport that's not in London but is somewhat adjacent to London, London-ish, had quite the fire 
last night. On Tuesday, the 10th of October, its multi-story parking garage is car park. now car my apologies, multi-story I car got park at about this today. It's car park. Anyway, the building that people put their cars in that go. used to be multi-story is no longer multi-story. Or at least most of it isn't a multi-story anymore. Yeah. And whatever cars are in there that were undamaged, apparently too bad. You're not going to get it because the building is now structurally unsound. But what's most important to us, the aviation folks and the people who track flights, is that for 16 hours, there were no flights in and out of Luton. I assume either because of the smoke or because all of their firefighting resources were trying to put out the fire in the terminal area, and it was a big one. Don't know what caused the fire. But of course, Ryanair was first airline back in the air on their way to Luton after things opened up. Excellent. Excellent. As one would expect. Excellent. I am proud of Ryanair. So if you parked your car at Luton and you're on vacation right now, call your insurance company. Let's see. Bermuda Air, the relatively new entrant into the what was supposed to be new entrant into the all business class configuration airlines has given up on the all-business-class configuration airline business before it even entered the all-business-class configuration business. So they took delivery of a few planes and had basically a normal cabin in them because they hadn't yet gotten to install their brand new all-business-class configuration. And now they're saying that after feedback on their current configuration – and looking at looking at the market, they're just not going to do that. So yeah. their e-jets have 88 seats. They were going to bring them down to 30. So they were going to do a roughly BA A318 deal. I believe they were already blocking adjacent seats because remember, it's an e-jet, so it's just two by two seating. But I do believe they were blocking adjacent seats. So it's kind of a Euro business situation. But I suspect that after operating for a few weeks, they got a feel of what the loads will be on these flights. And they thought, you know what? Maybe we don't need to buy the entire aircraft worth of business class seats because these seats are expensive. They can cost tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars a piece. Maybe we can just get away with doing half the airplane with business class. And I think that's a smart move. Yeah. I mean, so they're going to do a mix of, they're calling it aisle class. Oh, and regular economy seating on their pair of E-175s. So if you were looking for an all-business-class airline flying to Bermuda, that's not going to happen anymore. Too bad. Right. Too bad. Everyone on the, the very popular Westchester to Bermuda route, they, they might have to book economy. Oh, Sorry. Bummer. Oh. That's a bummer. Follow up on one of the stories that we've been following, one of the more bizarre stories that we've been following for the past, oh, I would say a few months now since we first kind of caught wind of it, CFM has now identified 126 engines, including a few in its own repair shops, that include parts from AOG Technics. Now, this isn't necessarily to say that there are 126 engines with parts that have forged documentation, but they've identified 126 engines with parts from AOG Technics. And now they are moving through the process of understanding exactly, are these okay? How many are problematic? How many parts do we need to take out? And things like that. And CFM, to their credit, is doing all of this 
without charging their airline customers. So anybody who was hit by the AOG Technics malfeasance is going to be made whole by CFM, which I think is a good thing for them to do, get those parts out. The one thing I did learn in the newest reporting, and this was new reporting from Flight Global about this based on an interview with the folks at CFM, is that a lot of these parts are not wearing... I mean, every part in an engine... You know, is critical, yeah, that's right? True. That's true. But but a lot of these are like bolts and fasteners and washers and things like that. I mean, how many accident investigations have concluded that a bolt or a fastener or a or whatever tiny innocuous piece caused a cascading chain reaction of things that went terribly wrong? So you can't discount the little fastener that isn't up to spec because its documentation was forged. Everything matters. I mean, just this week, the NTSB issued a call for stricter safety regulations because of a mechanical issue that caused the seaplane crash near Seattle last September. So, I mean, that's near Whidbey Island. I mean, that I think is the perfect example of a tiny linkage causing a crash and being the critical piece in the chain of why the aircraft crashed. So yeah, no, Jason, you're 100% right. Oh, thank you. <laughs> wow. I, did I just say that? Oh, All right. Mark that down. Wednesday, oh, October 11, 5.38 PM. I was right about a thing. <laughs> so that's the update there as CFM continues to work through and identify any additional pieces inside the engines that may have come from AOG Technics. We will move on to everyone hating Qantas, which has apparently become a recurring theme. It's and- going to be a TV show soon, just titled <laughs> Everybody Hates Qantas. Oh, boy. So in this week's episode, Richard Goiter, who is the chairman of Qantas Group, will step down in 2024 ahead of the airline's annual general meeting in October. This is quote, in recognition of the reputational issues facing the group and to support the restoration of trust in the company. All right. Yeah. I mean, it seems like if executives here are playing things smartly, they're leaving before they have the chance to be shown the door. That is true. But meanwhile, in other Australian aviation news, Virgin Australia recorded its first profit in 11 years years this past Hey, good for them. That is outstanding. Also, how the hell has Virgin Australia not been able to turn a profit one time in the last 11 years? They're practically a duopoly in that country. Has Qantas been, I guess Qantas really has been that absolutely dominant in Australia. That's outrageous. I guess that goes to show you how much people don't like Qantas. I mean, we dislike Qantas so much now that we handed Virgin Australia its first profit in 11 years. That is crazy. I mean, not only did Virgin Australia barely survive COVID, it stopped flying long haul entirely. So many of its aircraft were repossessed by our good friend, Steve Giordano. I don't think he's been to Australia recently, but I know they were there in the peak of COVID. Yeah. Pretty crazy that this is what it took to get Virgin Australia its first profit in 11 years. That is not a figure I would have even remotely said, oh, that's not possible. They must have been profitable 
over the last couple of years. But nope, first profit in 11 years. Meanwhile, everybody's mad at Qantas. So Australia, you've got a strange aviation industry. <laughs> and we'll keep following it. You've got two airlines, but it's always so much drama. I don't know what to tell you. Finnair, on the other hand, is saying that they're pretty well and good as far as their narrowbody fleet's concerned for now. They don't want to deal with the new fangled engines. They don't want to deal with ordering aircraft that might never be delivered. They're just content to have slightly older, more reliable aircraft that have availability. And I mostly cannot blame them. That point of view, I don't know, that approach to aircraft technology, that will work for a while. But Finnair is one of probably the few major airlines in the world that does not have any new engine technology, narrow body aircraft at all. Its average fleet age of its A319 COs is over 22. Its A320s is over 21. And its 321s are relatively new at over nine years on average. But I cannot name you another large mainline carrier that doesn't have any next generation narrow bodies. I mean, not next generation unless you're counting the, the 73NG, but an airline that does not have any NEOs or any MAXs. I am struggling to name any other major airline in the world that doesn't have either one of those two. And Finnair, not only do they not have any, they don't have any on order. I don't know what their strategy is, but once those 319s, 320s start hitting 25, 30 years old, they're going to need to be replaced whether or not they want a Neo or a Max. So I don't know what the plan is, but Ian, can you think of any other airline in this? I'm, I mean, I'm having trouble coming up with any, you know, any flag carriers without at least some on order. So yeah, if anyone else can think of any, I'm just e going to call it. Finnair is probably the largest airline in the world that doesn't have any new engine technology narrow bodies. I cannot think of any other airline of Finnair size that has just said, you know what? No, we're gonna we're gonna sit this one out. All right. Well, if anybody else can think of any, email us at podcast at fr24.com and let us know. Finnair, for its part, says that they're happy looking into the leasing market for aircraft that are coming available that are. This is going to bother me. The I, current I need, engine. I need to know. Is this true? <laughs> and so we'll we'll see what they do. And somebody email us and help Jason out. Help me. On the new engine front and new aircraft front, Tag Angola has said that it is going to take four 787s. Eventually, one day, unspecified, don't know what kind, don't know how big, don't know when, but they will maybe take them eventually to replace their now aging 777-200 and 300 ER fleet. Not in Ireland you hear much about ever. No, but I do enjoy their livery, and I think it would be nice to see a 787 in that paint scheme. Yeah, it's a nice one. Another livery I very much enjoy is Luxairs, and they're picking up some New Yorkcraft too, right? Yes, four E195 E2s. Delivery is not starting until the fourth quarter of 2025, so we've got a little while to wait for that. And they've secured, and I'm quoting, delivery positions for five more. Another oh, airline you don't really hear all that much about ordering an aircraft you don't really hear all that much about. Their fleet is a very interesting mix because they've got the 737, they've got 
Dash 8s, and now they're going to have E195 E2s. And I think that'll be fun. Yeah, there's some Dash 8s mixed in there as well. A couple E190. Unfortunately, there I don't believe there is an E190 E2 out there. But yeah, an interesting fleet for an airline from Luxembourg, a country you don't hear much about. Forget about an airline you don't hear much about. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. They do have a great livery though. I mean, it's- It is nice. The waving flag, there's like a special name for when you make it look like the flag is waving on- Wavy flag, I believe. Sure. But they do a very good job. They have one in particular, a 73800NG, a special livery with- I guess it incorporates a part of the actual Luxembourgian flag, and it's got a lion with wings in the front. It is spectacular. I think it might be their 60th anniversary livery. Not quite sure. It is, I'm only seeing this for the first time right now. It is one of the <laughs> nicest liveries I have ever seen. Is that they a do Turkish a good Airlines job. Logo on the top of the tail. What is that doing up there? If you happen to see that, the I'm going to do the rest of the podcast now while Jason continues to pour over this livery. I'm just looking at it. It's LXLGV. If you happen to see it, look it up because it's worth the time. It is. Hey, how about a link in the show notes? We'll do. We'll do that. We'll do you one better. Also new is Air India's first A350 with the new livery has made it home. So they've taken delivery of their first, and it looks like it's supposed to. I guess yeah, is the- I'm, I'm still on the fence about this one. I can't tell if I like it or not, or I'm indifferent. It's just weird seeing an Air India aircraft without the window decorations on the exterior. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I want to see a better picture of it than the one they, they posted, which also is true. just kind of well, in the painting. I mean, the pictures I saw, the aircraft didn't have engines on it. So did it make it home already or is it still being painted? I will double Pretty check. sure it's in the paint hangar in Toulouse and didn't actually make it home just yet. Okay. Well, I'll double check. Where are we going? What more paint? More paint. We love paint. We love paint. Americans retro liveries. We've got two more this week. The US Airways retro livery was repainted. So that one's staying the same. N578UW. And the Allegheny livery is now on an A321 N579UW. So they're shifting all of the retro liveries to the A321. Well, I don't know if they're doing all because there's the Aircal and TWA that were on 737s or are on 737s. Yeah, I so think any that were that previously around. on US Airways A319s, of which there were a good number, are being moved over to 321s. Don't know why. I'm okay with it because of all the US airlines, American, thankfully, has a really good habit of embracing its heritage and any possible variation of American and U.S. Airways' past has ended up as a retro livery. I think there's Allegheny, U.S. Airways, PSA. What are some of the other ones that I know I'm forgetting? Yeah, PSA, Allegheny, Piedmont. Piedmont. There's more. I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of them. Aircal, not- Reno. Aircal. Thank you, Reno. There's Reno a lot of them. I can't even TWA. remember them all. United has a couple. They have the Continental retro paint job, and they also have the old United livery that is that even a thing or is it just the continental one these days i think that the friendship was still around it was parked for a yes, very long the, time the a320 friendship that's yeah. correct it's still out there and then there's delta which has no recognition of its past or history ever 
and you will never see. I think on multiple occasions, flatly refused to to even acknowledge that it's a possibility that a retro livery is. So that will probably never happen, unfortunately, even though there's so, so, so much history leading up to the current day Delta. But American really leans heavily into it, and I salute them for that. There you go. Yeah, they're doing a nice job. We end the show on a very sad but hopeful note, I think. The young man that we met in Los Angeles at the beginning of September during Dorkfest, Ethan Weiner, who is from Phoenix, Arizona, and convinced his mother to bring him to Los Angeles for Dorkfest and Spot LAX and convinced her using a 25-slide PowerPoint presentation, who Jason and I were both incredibly impressed with. And I think anybody who met him was incredibly impressed with him. He was a delight to talk to and just extremely knowledgeable already, and he's only 14. This week, we received news that Ethan has been diagnosed with a brain tumor. And he is going to Memphis, Tennessee. There is a hospital there and doctors there who are adept at treating this particular type of tumor. But the family has begun a GoFundMe to help cover expenses and things like that. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. If anyone can and is willing to contribute, I'm sure that would certainly be appreciated by Ethan and his family. But just such a so soon after meeting him and being so incredibly impressed by his passion for aviation. This is just a real punch in the gut. Yeah. Hate to hear news like that, but we wish him well. We wish his family well and take a look in the show notes and I guess give a little something if you feel like you need to work or can. The aviation community, it's wide, but it's very small. And in my experience, it's extremely caring. So hopefully we can come through for Ethan. This has been episode 237 of Av Talk. If you made it this far, you're probably a regular listener and you're probably pretty dedicated to Flight Raider 24. So we'll give you a little preview of what we're going to talk about next week. And we absolutely thank you for that. We'll give you a little preview about what we're going to talk about next week. Earlier today, we released updates for the Android, iOS apps, and the web that includes a new 3D view. So go check that out, and you'll be able to see some ultra-realistic models and liveries for a bunch of different airlines. We're super excited about that. And so next week on the show, we're going to be chatting with the folks at Infinite Flight, who created those models and shared those liveries with us. And we'll talk more about how that all came together and what Infinite Flight is and what they're up to next. So stay tuned for that well, that's next interesting. week. We might even join for that interview if I can get out of some meetings. That sounds fun. There you go. Yeah, we'll have a good time. But until then, this has been episode 237 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.